your risk appetite is that you could lose $10 million. Because the board of directors might go, I don't want to lose more than five. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Sean, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Good yourself. Yeah, good. It's been a while since I've spoken to you on the show, six months, I think. So I'm keen to really dive into, I mean, a lot's changed since then, and I'm keen to get into the topic. So what have you sort of learned anyway, since we last caught up on the show? Uh, oh, I guess loads of things have probably changed since uh, I think August last year. So um, look, I think the big thing is we, you know, especially in Australia, at least anyway, and probably obviously many parts of the world, um, you know, we went through sort of subsequent waves of COVID. I think businesses started to see that level of, you know, stepping up yet again uh, to ensure there was some sort of level, level of resiliency. Uh, and at least from a cyber standpoint, uh, it was more a case of, you know, the, the attackers or the adversaries didn't really sort of sit on their hands and do nothing. I think we started to see an escalation continue as it always has been escalating. So, yeah, look, I think we just started to see a lot of activity. Uh, businesses wanting to do more, businesses growing, um, you know, some people struggling as well, but at the same time, you know, how to make sure that the lights are always going to be on. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, so much has happened in the last few weeks, which we're going to obviously get into. But do you think that now, as we sort of traverse into this new sort of world because of what's happening and you know, Russia, Ukraine, all of that, it's really going to change the dynamic of how we operate, as one, as a society, but two, then, as a security industry? Yeah, good question. I think what we've probably learned over what's happened the last 20-plus days, at least, and obviously even leading up to uh, sort of what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, I think the biggest challenge is geopolitical issues and geopolitical risks are something that every business leader should really be taking into account uh, and, and factor that in into the overall sort of risk management strategy. We always need to be looking at not just simply what could happen to us directly, what could be the byproduct of that. And when you think about areas such as supply chain, uh, you know, we saw that firsthand when it came to at the start of the pandemic. We saw many people, you know, struggling to even get just simple basic components that they needed to, to procure, to sell, to, to really sort of make their own technology and services and products work. Uh, and I think, yet again, we need to start thinking about that because, you know, a geopolitical issue could actually cause a supply chain issue for us as well. Great point. Byproduct. Do you believe people think about that at all? Because, you know, if, so for example, if this happens and, and it doesn't work out, then potentially something else could go down. Do you think people think about that or do you think that they're so busy trying to get their own head above the water, let alone think about anyone else's? I think it's a mixture uh, and it's, it's hard to, you know, I think you definitely cannot sort of tire everyone with the same brush and say, absolutely, they do or they don't. Uh, I think it's a mixture, and I think that really comes down to the level of maturity that organisations have. You know, when I think about um, have people gone through the process to understand one who their suppliers are, who their most material suppliers are that could cause a material impact if they were no longer available. Um, you know, I think sometimes that's where some organisations probably have been a little bit lax. Others definitely think through it. You know, others have got some very key. Uh, supply chain risk management programs in place. Others have not even thought about what they should actually do in that space. Okay, so let's discuss a big topic that's going around the industry at the moment. Uh, you obviously are very immersed into this topic, which is supply chain. Lots going on in the world, as we've just sort of touched on briefly before. 
But where do you sort of see the biggest threats to supply chains at the moment? Uh, look, I think there's, there's a couple of elements to it. So if I think about it from a just general, in terms of what we've sort of seen coming up, the, uh, so hopefully coming out of the end of uh, the, the pandemic, we saw, you know, manufacturing disrupted. We saw people basically getting COVID, people were basically, you know, re- reduction in force in, in some areas. We saw delays. We saw a range of different factors. And that obviously then flows onto, you know, people like ourselves, consumers. It could be down to manufacturers that are waiting to receive their own goods uh, so they can get their, their components out there. You know, take the example of if you wanted to buy a brand new car right now, there's going to be a very, very long wait time because it's actually hard to get microprocessors to put inside some of those cars. You know, why is that? Well, there's supply chain issues when it comes to the microprocessor part. Um, but And that could be something as simple as you going to a furniture store and buying some furniture and, you know, no longer is that lead time 10 weeks. It could be, you know, 18, 20 weeks. But when you think about it from the cyber context, you know, businesses right now are really trying to get themselves out there, you know, pushing a brand new product, route to market, service, and we're moving a million miles an hour. And when I think about from a, um, you know, building and developing applications, we're borrowing code from bits and pieces of uh, other other people's code that they've actually created. So think about your GitHub, Bitbucket, you know, developers are just simply going there and borrowing components or bits of code. They're putting it together and creating an application that you're going to probably be using uh, some sort of custom application and that's now productized. So what happens if there's actually a vulnerability in that? You know, are we actually going back in time to see you know, what are those components? What are the binaries that are being used? Uh, what code was actually used? And that concept of shift left, you know, shifting the element of as we start to build some technology, as we start to deploy it and run it, are we looking at every single factor of that piece to secure it? That's effectively supply chain. Now, when you think about um, some of the most recent ones, you know, just before Christmas, we saw the Log4j vulnerability. You know, Log4j is a binary that's really there to, to collect uh, information around, you know, how are people using this particular um, component or particular application? And, you know, people are actually using that in commercial off-the-shelf applications. So vendors are scrambling around trying to work out, well, do we use it? What's the vulnerable version? How do we patch it? Patch came out, of course, some other issues. But people also started to use those particular binaries to create custom applications inside their own organization. So now we're quickly running around and trying to work out what's the bill of materials of all the software and all the components that we're using inside our organization. And that starts to spawn this bigger challenge of, you know, do we have a software bill of materials? Uh, and this concept called SBOM, which was talked about probably about 10 plus years, is now back on the table. And again, this is a supply chain. You know, so that's one aspect. The other part to it is, um, you know, think about in Australia, think about any actually any large country around the world, you know, it's fair to say that the the majority of the top 20, top 30 organizations probably make up a very large part of the GDP of that particular country. But this, what serves underneath that, or I guess what, what's, what serves those larger organizations is the underbelly of every country, which is those small to medium enterprises. You know, in Australia, we've got 90 plus percent of small to medium enterprises is effectively that. So what happens if they get impacted and we're focusing all of our attention on the top end of the town only? There you go. Your supply chain basically gets hit. And, you know, how porous is that underbelly of the country? That could be actually pretty big because some of these organizations don't really think that far ahead around how do they secure themselves. And I think that's the challenge that we need to keep on thinking about. It's not just simply let's look at the people that can afford to do it. Uh, We should be thinking about how do we protect the people that can't actually protect themselves. 
Okay, so there's a lot in there. One of the things that was coming up for me as you were talking is the delay side of things. Now, over the last few years, we've had, like, if you if I go back and, and look at this, so you had, you know, um, delays on, on getting certain, I think it was wood from the US, for example, into Australia, for example. So I'm curious to know, with the delays, is it going to A, get worse? And then I guess the other side of the coin is with the supply chain side of things, because we can't get certain uh, items or minerals like uh, fuel, for example. What's sort of going to happen then? Is it just going to keep skyrocketing? Like, like what really is the go? So I think there's, <laughs> I, I think you've probably, you've touched on a couple of pieces, key pieces there. One, I think we've got a bit of a perfect storm. There's this pent up demand from consumers that really want to try and, you know, get as much things as they can. Um, you know, take the example of any type of product that's actually out there, any consumable item. You know, we're buying a lot more. And when it's struggling, when, when we've got manufacturers that are struggling to even sort of get some of those raw materials or the components that are needed to create those particular items, we're just going to see this you know, exacerbated problem effectively where people are waiting, people are you know, demanding that they're getting their products. We're buying more, we're trying to buy more, uh, but manufacturers just can't even keep up and the raw materials can't even be put out of the ground or, or whatever it may be. So I think we're going to continue to see some of these challenges. Uh, sorry, Sean, just a quick question on that. When you say we're buying more, why are we buying more? Is it because people are stressed that we're not going to get any more or they're worried or they're doing sort of the, the hoarding thing? Like, why, like, why is that? So I, I think it depends on some countries where some people really didn't spend a lot of money during the pandemic. So now there's this pent up, okay, well, I've got all this extra money and it's extra saving, so let me go buy more. Um, you've got other people that just continuing to, yeah, so, so you've got that element. And then the other part is people are just very keen to get out there and just you know, start living life again. And that could just be not you know, over, over buying, like that hoarding piece that we saw at the start of the pandemic. Uh, I think it's just more a case of people just want to get out there. People want to live life and, and sort of put that part of, of their lives behind them and you know, treat themselves to, to new things. We didn't go out and buy oh, – sorry, we weren't doing the annual holiday to, to Europe or to any other part of the country because we couldn't really sort of move around. So we just had this extra supply of, of, of cash that's sitting there. So let's start using it. And then when you think about the, the renovations that were taking place, we saw the building boom take place. If raw materials can't come into the country. Well, that's where you can start to see delays. We saw, you know, so I saw some people actually, the, the cost of their build, you know, dramatically go up just because the raw materials weren't even available. Mm, I know. Oh my gosh. Everyone was home renovating. I remember that period of time. I think we've moved past that now. Are you, so... With the delays, and I know I maybe I derailed you uh, before only because I, w- I was curious as to why people were buying more. Is it going to get worse? Because now it's like, oh, like there's, I think at one point in Sydney, like there was the food delay. And then, you know, if if we're getting to that level, which is like necessity of eating, like what's going to happen to like human beings? And like, are we, how how bad is it going to get? Look, I'm not going to be an alarmist and say that the, the world's, you know, the, the sky's falling or anything like that. But I think that the challenges that we're looking at right now are you've got material scarcity. You've got the increasing uh, freight prices that are actually sort of going up. And, and when you start to add fuel costs, well, freight prices are obviously going to naturally go up because of that. Uh, it's hard to demand uh, some accurate forecasting. And I think I'm seeing that across a lot of the earnings calls that, uh, that, that people are sort of popping up. You can see that there's some sort of little movement there in some organizations. Because there's been delays in unloading containers at ports, you've naturally got a port congestion. So there's going to be sort of that extended delay that takes place. Our attitudes have changed. Uh, I think there's 
there's a lot of people that are thinking differently about the way that they want to spend their money, do stuff. And then the backdrop of that is digital transformation. You know, you think about the start of the pandemic. Many organizations probably had some sort of transformation program in place, but every business probably sounded the alarm and said, okay, we're going to go as fast as we can. You said you're going to do it in three years. Great. You've got probably three months or, you know, you've probably got a very shorter period of time. And that's where it became a rapid, if not radical transformation, because they needed to do something. They were going through that element of survival. You know, how do we ensure that we can maintain our business? How do we maintain some form of productivity? Let's quickly do that as fast as we can. And that's where we saw some challenges where people are now starting to feel the effects of, ooh, we didn't really think about that. And, you know, people moved out to public cloud, as an example, didn't really think about securing it the way they should have probably thought about securing from the start. Yeah, that's so true. So going back to your example before, just to walk through so the listeners are aware of the counter example and to sort of paint the picture. Uh, so you, you gave the example about the couch and then if supply chain like is impacted and how that sort of affects the consumer buying uh, a couch, for example. So can you maybe talk through that in a little bit more fidelity just so people know exactly that relates to them. Everyone's probably bought a couch in the last five years, so we make it very, very practical in terms of what this could look like for any person out there on the street. Yeah, so and, and it could, a couch is one of many examples, and I think we all probably sort of experienced this as well. There is, if you look at any products that's, let's just say technology product, probably even easier for, all, for the majority of your listeners. Technology products are actually made up of a series of different components. And when we started to have border closures, we saw that, um, you know, a, a range of different factors were coming in due to the pandemic. We saw that, you know, people just had some extra cash because they weren't being, they weren't able to go out to, to restaurants and bars and the like. So they thought, well, let's just buy more. Uh, people couldn't keep up with the demand of what products they actually wanted to, what, what products were needed to be fulfilled and then what products were actually on the shelves. And that happened from everything from smartphones to, to cars uh, you know, we, we saw people simply going into a store and it could be something that's non-technical or no known to technology involved, such as a couch. And because of the delays of getting the raw materials, because of the delays of, you know, uh, manufacturing plants shutting down because of COVID and, and obviously their staff actually being impacted, you know, we just saw these extra delays every single time. You know, if you buy a couch and it's actually made overseas, guaranteed you're going to be waiting 12 plus weeks at the best of times. You know, I think many people probably waited 16 to 18 weeks. And I saw they actually waited 20 weeks for a couch. Uh, you know, buying a brand new car right now, there's probably a six-month wait. And it's not because it's some fancy sports car. It's actually just going to take an extra long bit of time because it's taking them a long time to make them. You know, think about some of the cars that uh, they come out of South Korea. You know, it was only a couple of days ago that we saw 600,000 COVID cases just in that country. Oh, yes. You're so right. So do you think that now... I mean, we've been going through this stuff, this turmoil for two and a half years. So do you think that we've gotten any better? Are we sort of well-equipped? Because I feel that, I mean, it's not linear. So sometimes we go, okay, and then it falls back down again. So what's your sort of hypothesis around will things get better? Have we learned some of our lessons and the sort of the, the failings and we can sort of move forward with the new data points that we've got now? Look, I'm going to be the eternal optimist and say absolutely we will. Um, I'd like to think that we will. But I think the element's going to be that some organizations are not as mature as others. Uh, when you have a very large supplier that you know is, is core to your business and they actually go offline, that's a very hard proposition for you to actually continue to sustain and, and be resilient as a business. 
So I think many people probably need to start thinking about what are the extra, what other suppliers could I go to? Are there other suppliers that you could go to? You know, there's not really one single source of, um, you know, a, a supplier for any products at the best of times, but obviously prices go up. And you know, can you sustain the same margins that you've actually had before? And we've seen that some organizations that want to maintain some level of profit margin they've had in the past, they never let go of stuff. And you think, how could you let go of stuff when it's actually core to your business? You know, take example of logistics. You know, some people were actually letting go of people that were doing deliveries for, you know, for products. And you think, how is that even possible when it's the busiest time of the year? It's even busier than, you know, kind of the, the Christmas holiday period. But some people just want to maintain that level of profit margin that's actually there. And, and that's each of their own. That's their own business. But, you know, we're going to continue to see these movements uh, more and more. And I think when you start to add geopolitical issues, you start to add, you know, the pandemic, you, you start to even just the, the, the backdrop of the pandemic there, you know, we're going to continue to see this for a while. So I'm curious now, I mean, from our chats historically, you sort of said that people aren't as focused on the supply chain from a security perspective. Why is that? And then how do we sort of get people focused on the supply chain? I think a lot of it really comes down to identifying, firstly, who is your who are your suppliers? So I'll take the example, and I'll use some sort of hypothetical numbers, but if I look at Peloton Networks, we've probably got a 1,000 suppliers that are listed in, our, in SAP right now. Uh, these are people that we've sort of vetted, we've gone through the process and said, these are our core suppliers. But out of that list, let's say there's 10 that are considered material. This is where you've gone through the process to work out if these are my crown jewels as our organization, if these are things that literally make the lights, uh, keep the lights turned on, you know, it, we derive revenue from some of those core components. Um, these are the people that I really want to sort of have a very close look on. And I know that people go through their software, uh, sorry, their supply chain risk management programs, and they may actually send out a document that's like, here's 700 pages, please let us know how you actually do security in your own organization. If I sent that out to seven, that to a thousand companies, that's going to take a very long time to get the answers back. And then if you start to apply that sort of rigor on every single person and that gets applied onto everyone else that's out there, all of a sudden we've just got people that are filling out compliance reports for the sake of filling out compliance reports that maybe no one's going to be looking at. Whereas I would rather focus my energy and effort on these are the people that literally could cause material impact to me if they're no longer there. So how do I raise the bar somewhat? How do I really manage the risk that's associated with it, not just simply do you use antivirus, do you use multi-factor authentication, but really driving change there. They're the ones that are really want to run and focus on it. And the other part to probably also note, when you are forcing people, and I say forcing you know, the, the term loosely, when you are telling people to actually fill out a form and it's not core to their business, like let's say cybersecurity is not core to their business, you're actually detracting from what's core to their business. They're going to be spending more time filling out a document that really you're probably not going to really pay that much attention to. So I think, again, that's a key thing. So identify your key suppliers, how are they linked to you know, your crown jewels and how you actually sort of run a business. I think the other, other part to that one is how do you actually start to grow as a business? And so that could be you know, building your own software applications. That could be a case of using third parties to actually use developers to actually build that. So are we going through the practices of identifying if there is any type of malicious uh, vulnerability or component or something that's actually there that could cause us some harm in the future. Then when you think about the suppliers that actually do come into your own organization physically, you know, have we vetted them? You know, have we gone through some sort of rigor to see what's actually going on? Because many times people can actually see that there's some sort of unauthorized production of goods. Uh, you know, we've seen counterfeits in the past or insertion of counterfeits into that sort of supply chain, tampering, theft, you know, insertion of malicious code, sometimes development practices. 
Yeah, and I think the development practices for me are the ones that we're probably not focusing too much attention, but it's actually causing us pain and has caused some organizations a lot of pain. So do you believe people would know their top 10 suppliers that are sort of that could generate material impact? Do you think that most people would know that? Maybe not off the top of their head, but they've they've got a list somewhere. I would assume that someone would know something inside their own organization. But if I think back to, you know, let's just say the last 22 years working in security and having a, a similar question that I've probably asked in various guises over the years, what are your crown jewels? Some people cannot actually answer that. And I won't say that's consistent every single time, but some organizations cannot actually answer the question of what are your crown jewels? And if you think about it, they can't identify what is richly, which, what's actually material. I don't really think that they've got a, a very high hope that they would know all of their key supplies that are actually material to them. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. So if you've got like a thousand, that's quite a lot. Do you think it's harder to sort of cut down? Like obviously if you're cutting from a thousand down to like a hundred, that's probably pretty easy. But when you're sort of getting down to like the last like 20 down to 10, do you think that that's a little bit of a harder process depending on who you ask? Because I mean, you're speaking to someone in like HR versus someone in finance, for example, they're going to have very different viewpoints. So how, how do you sort of come together uh, from a, a place of unity to, to make that decision? I think the big thing is, and you kind of sort of called it right out, it has to be cross-functional. You know, if we were to let someone that's in, let's just call it security, actually go through the process saying, let's actually identify our cybersecurity, you know, risk management or from a supplier standpoint, they're not going to know who are the key suppliers. They may look at a name that's sitting in SAP and say, ABC Incorporated, what do they do? Oh, okay, is that really material to us? You know, that's where we'd have to go through and understand, you know, what's material to finance, what's material to HR, what's material to, you know, technology providers, you know, system integrators. You know, you'd have to go through and have a cross-functional team to go through that process. I think making the third-party risk management absolutely has to be the priority in any organization. You know, identifying, prioritizing those supply chain vulnerabilities. What could also happen? You know, the what-if scenarios is absolutely key. You know, engaging your suppliers a little bit early and start to say, if we're going to onboard someone new, what are some things that I'd actually would want to ask them, you know, straight off the bat? If they need to get some sort of remote connectivity to our systems and servers, uh, you know, have we gone through a process of actually sort of vetting them? Uh, you know, think about standard due diligence, you know, the cyber due diligence part of it. Am I buying an organization that potentially is going to be riddled with challenges that I have no idea what's going on? And if you think about the examples, we've seen that many times before. You know, people buying during the acquisition process where they found, you know, that there was a breach and all of a sudden the price of that acquisition dramatically dropped. Uh, you know, people have to be looking under the covers, looking in the closets to work out, you know, is there a gap? Is there an exposure? Could this actually harm us today, tomorrow, or the day after? Can you provide some examples around uh, what are some of the questions that people can ask? I mean, at a high level when they are doing the vetting process, for example? Yeah, look, I think a lot of it would be how do they actually just protect themselves? So if I had someone that was actually building hardware components, I'd want to make sure that they've actually got some form of security uh, to their own organization. You know, how do you actually mitigate threats that are coming inside your own organization? If these are people that are building, you know, technology that, you know, maybe going into government, defense, industrial base, you know, do you vet any of the people? Um, you know, have you gone through some sort of process? So looking at everything from people, process, technology, it's not just simply a technology thing. You know, we'd want to know, how are you actually securing yourself? How do you protect yourself, protect your own organization? Uh, I think the first and foremost, that's going to be a key part. And then if you look at those, each of those three branches, what are the questions? You know, people, do you vet them? 
you know, have you gone through the process of actually doing background checks? If it is sensitive in nature, that is, you know, from a technology standpoint, what tools do you use? You know, I would be a little bit concerned if I was actually working with an organization that said, oh, it's okay, we actually use some free antivirus technology off the internet. That's how we actually do security in all of our desktops. I'd be like, okay, that's not really going to help me out. Um, so I'd want to make sure that they're actually doing something like that. People accessing their applications are using multi-factor authentication. You know, how do you actually do those types of checks and balances? Processes. If there was an event, you know, if there was some sort of material impacts that took place to your own organization, how would you identify it? How would you do the triage? How would you then go through the process of remediating and responding to that? That should be a documented process somewhere. You know, meantime to detect, meantime to respond, are actual values and numbers that we we all look at, right? and hopefully many people look at as well. We'd want to understand how quickly could you respond if something went wrong, and that would actually show me pretty quickly if someone's actually mature or not. If someone said, "Oh, we don't even do that," or "We don't even have a process of how we'd actually go through that," lucky we have never been impacted. If I heard terms like that, I would probably get a little bit nervous. Yeah, and rightly so. So there was a time in my uh, security days where we were dealing with a very, very large uh, supplier, well-known brand, and obviously we had to ask all these questions and part of the process was, you know, do you do pen testing? And that was, yes, of course we do pen testing, and then we're like, okay, cool. Uh, they, We sort of said, well, we need to pen test it ourselves and they were like no so I guess I understand why but the theory is from our point of view when I was working on the client side is more so well you know you could sort of just get anyone off the street to like do a very preliminary pen test right doesn't mean you're going to find anything so how does that conversation work because I mean at the end of the day no one wants to be exposed no one wants to sort of uh, lose their spot on a panel if you are working with a big corporation. Uh, and, and I get the reasoning for pushback, but then ha- how do you sort of find that middle ground? I think it's an element of trust. Uh, and I think that's where, like everything that we do in life, if we trust someone, we're probably going to go that little bit extra to do something with them, you know, for them, whatever it may be. If people are a little bit guarded, and, and I, that kind of falls or reminds me of the old days in the, the operational technology networks where people used to say it was security through obscurity. Let's not tell anyone how these systems work because if we don't tell anyone, then no one's going to be able to break into it because they won't even know how to break into it. That's great. That didn't really work out too well for us and, and I don't think that's actually a great strategy. You know, Being open, being collaborative, I think is actually the way forward where you can build some level of trust. Um, if you think about, if someone's going to have a web application as an example, external facing, if a pen test was to be, oh, sorry, you can't use, your pen testers can't be used to, to check this. Uh, here's the report and, and just follow the report and that's it. I'm sorry, but an attacker doesn't actually follow a report and an attacker doesn't actually go through change process either. So if it's external facing, anyone and everyone can basically sort of do that. And I think sometimes that's the vantage point that we'd actually need to think about as well. You know, what the attacker sees is not necessarily what our tools and telemetry actually are telling us as well because everything that we're doing usually is focused on inside. Uh, it's not really showing us that view of externally, what does my organization look like? Because that's the vantage point that the attacker has. If I'm buying, you know, there's mergers and acquisitions that are taking place. And, you know, I'll take the example of Peltonomics again. You know, we've gone through a decent amount of acquisitions the last three and a bit years. Every single time we go through that, we need to understand what is it that we're buying? You know, do they actually have instances that are sitting in various clouds? I spoke to an organization that said, you know, we're already sitting in two clouds, AWS and you know, GCP as an example. 
And then when, you know, scans were taking place, you say, well, you're actually in 25 different places because you're in a colo over here. You're actually working with Orange Business Services over here. You're in NTT's data center over there. This is the footprint. And that's the footprint that an attacker will use. That's their beachhead to get inside an organization. So again, going through that process saying, we need to do this for our own due diligence and testing. And I think that's where partnerships and trust are actually sort of formed. You know, blocking people from doing that doesn't really work out too well because they may decide to go somewhere else. Do you think using the words DD or due diligence gets people a little bit on the back foot perhaps? Always. <laughs> and I think the other parts of that is let's make sure that it's not seen as some sort of I'm going to do an audit on you. Governance, all those words are worrying. Oh, look, governance is something that I think has to be there. I'm not a massive fan of the point and shoot. This point in time, we've done an audit and we're okay. You know, you and I both know, having worked in this industry for a while, things can change five seconds after that report came out to say everything's green. You know, take the example of you know, going back a little bit, you know, Microsoft Exchange uh, vulnerability that had uh, that impacted on-premise exchange servers. You know, what happens if I did a scan five days before that actual scan to say, we're all good, everything's amazing, there's no vulnerabilities. But then as soon as that vulnerability comes out, it's like I've now got a gaping hole in exposure to my organization. How would you know? And I think this is where we need to move beyond that audit piece of once upon a time, we do this every quarter, every year. It has to be real time because the world that we're living in is extremely dynamic. You know, cybersecurity as a whole is extremely dynamic. And then when you start to add geopolitical issues, threats that change all the time, you know, ransomware groups moving from here to there, pivoting, you know, the changing face of the adversary, that happens all the time. And that will always happen in between those, you know, every quarter type of scans that take place because that's the thing that can actually sort of you know, get you undone very quickly. So, Sean, can you talk through some strategies perhaps? So focusing on the real time, yes, I agree with you. You've handed over a report and then something fails off the back of that, but it doesn't matter because the report that you sent across is what they're sort of basing everything off. So can you talk through some strategies that provide oversight about a company to sort of gain insight on their suppliers? Like what does this look like? So there's a couple of different things. So if you want to have a look at your suppliers, I think the first steps are, one, there's capability that you can actually use or, or leverage open source intelligence effectively. We can say, tell me what this organization looks like. Um, and if you were to do a scan of that organization, you want to work out what does their landmass, uh, you know, how big and small is that organization? What are the domains they've actually got? What do they own? You know, are they actually protected resources that are actually out there? And, you know, going through using some open source tools can help you out, but obviously it's going to take a little bit of time. There's also commercial uh, tools and services that actually allow you to do those scans and, and continue to make maintain some sort of monitoring around what's going on. You know, if I think about what, what we do at Polydynamics as an example, we have obviously tools and services that allow us to do that. And these were tools that we had started to use probably 18 months before we decided, let's actually acquire this uh, solution or this particular company because we believe there's going to be some value for our customers as well. And that's just real-time scanning. And effectively, anything that's connected to the internet, we're going to scan the internet a couple of times per day and see what are all the assets that belong to that particular organization. If there's a change, if there's a vulnerability, you'd be able to see that. Because if I can see that pretty quickly, you can guarantee that an attacker is going to see that pretty quickly. But it also does require you to have some sort of a process around once you've got that information. You know, it's kind of like once you've got the report, what do you do with it? You know, does it sit in an in-tray? Or have actually built some sort of a process to be a little bit programmatic around if this actually happens, we need to know about it. 
an alert needs to be fired off. There needs to be some sort of a triage take place. You know, people need to rally around and say, okay, what do we do now? Let's start to act. Because as soon as that clock starts ticking, the attackers also got the opportunity to start saying, well, I'm going to have a bit of a go and see what I can actually do to get inside that organization as well. So what do you do now? So, for example, you've done a real-time scan, sitting there, what's the next step? How do we go through the process of you know, answering the, the, the four questions when it comes to risk management? Do you either accept the risk, avoid it, transfer, if there is the option to transfer, or mitigate? And I think that's the, that's the key thing that every business leader needs to think about, those four questions every single time. You know, there's no point in me spending a million dollars to protect an asset that's cost that's going to be one dollar. Sorry, that that's, that's value is one dollar. Um, can I mitigate the risk? Is there a way that I can mitigate it? You know, in the event of a vulnerability popping up, um, you know, could you roll out a patch? Well, there are no patches. Okay, well then, what's the compensating control that I could use to mitigate that? You know, if there is a way that I could avoid the risk, you know, is it a case of simply applying someone to actually protect that, whatever that may actually be? Um, you know, avoidance could an example of avoidance could be take a paper backup copy of every bit of data that you've got there. Probably cost prohibitive, but it's not going to also stop every single form of data loss that you've got as well. You know, transferring risk. You know, I, I don't really see that as an option all the time. Uh, and some people see using an MSSP or a service provider is transferring risk. The risk always stays with you. Accountability will always remain with the organisation because it's your name that's on the front page of the newspaper if you get breached. You know, you, you can only transfer responsibility. Um, but when you think about it like that, it's like, okay, well, what can we do? So if I'm an e-commerce provider um, selling some you know, widgets on the internet and for that part of the financial transaction, I don't want to store all the, uh, the PCI information. I don't want to do that sort of payment card processing. So I just use a third-party payment gateway to actually do that. I'm transferring the financial risk to someone else to do that. Um, and that's the part where I can say, okay, well, I've transferred that part out and I can manage the rest of the risk. These are things that every single business leader needs to always think about. Yeah, because that's how we start to work out what's our risk appetite. I can't walk into an organization and say, your risk appetite is that you could lose $10 million. Because the board of directors may turn go, I don't want to lose more than five. Um, so having those conversations, working through that to work out what is your level of tolerance. Because when you think about some of the, the recent issues that we've seen, ransomware attacks is a great example. You know, if you were to pay, and I'm not for I'm not one for the pain because I think that's just the case of feeding the beast and potentially could be funding terrorist organizations as well. But if you had to pay because that was your way out, one, do you know what you're actually paying for? You know, would you actually get the, the decryption key if you needed that? You know, do you have a process? Would you work with law enforcement? I've spoken to people at Interpol before where, you know, people have been crippled and they got to law enforcement too late. It's like, we've had a decryption key for this particular ransomware for a long, long time. Yeah, and they'd already paid money for it. Uh, you know, it's an understanding, what could we do? You know, could we accept it? Could we just turn around and go, oh, that's okay. It's those particular systems. Let's actually just restore from a backup. You know, have you done a backup? Have you tested the integrity of the backup? You know, and they, these are ways that we could start to either accept, avoid, mitigate, or transfer the risk. And every single time, there's always going to be those four options available to us, hopefully. But if not all four, there's going to be something that you can actually use. So just sort of pressing on the four options. So some of the challenges that happen within an internal sort of organization from a risk management perspective is 
you may have very conflicting views on, yes, I accept, no, I reject, no, that's someone else's problem. How do you manage that? Because I mean, if you're looking at business risk versus like tech risk and then, you know, security risk, like you've got a lot of different opinions in the room that may not really get each other's point of view. They say they do, but again, everyone's got their own agenda. Everyone's protecting their their area and their role. So how, how do you sort of come together? I've been in rooms before where people just couldn't agree at all. So how do we move past that um, so we are getting the best outcome for the organization. I think in the end, sometimes it actually has to come down to, whilst this may be something that's very, very important in my department, business unit, whatever it may be, does it actually align to what's important to the business? And where I sort of usually start that conversation, if I was just to be a complete outsider walking to an organization, I'm going to have a look at the organization. Um, you know, if they're a publicly listed company, have a look at the annual um, you know, their annual general report that comes out. You know, what do they call it as challenges? What do they call it as their strategic imperatives? And if someone wants to be talking about something that has nothing to do with the strategic imperatives and no matter how you can actually link it to something, it still does not align. Or maybe it's completely counter to that. How is it important? I know it's your, in your wheelhouse and it's probably something that's important to you and you see that's important, but that's where you're actually, there's a disconnect between you and the business. And I think many times people have actually gone and said, we need widget X. Okay, what's it going to do? It's going to stop bad things from happening. Okay, <laughs> how does that actually sort of align to the business? I think many times we have to actually go through and call it out and say, does this really make a difference? You know, have you looked at the risk register to work at the last, the, the top five things that are there? Is it going to solve any one of those problems? No. Is it going to solve anything that's in the risk register? No. Why are we doing it? And I think that's where business leaders could also start to work out it and understand that it's not, you know, cyber risk, if you want to call it that, drop the cyber moniker, it's just risk. And I think that's where we have to sit down and really play that translation between business to tech, tech to business. That's how we start to get to that place. Let's not stop. Let's not go through this process of continuing to bamboozle people with big words like bamboozle and, and make people concerned about, oh, I don't really understand this mysterious thing. Let's get someone else to do that. It, it's just risk. And let's go through the process. What's material to me? If that SAP server is actually offline, that's effectively the cash register to our business, that causes us to lose money. And people will actually know how much money you would actually lose if SAP was down in some organizations. You know, we would not be able to do a bill of materials, a manifest. You know, if our source code repository was down and you're a software company that actually has a material impact, you know, the integrity of your customers is up for grabs effectively. You, know, you start to see all those different things. So working out what your crown jewels are, working out the dependencies from those crown jewels, who are the suppliers that interact with that? That's actually the starting point that you need to think about. And that's where we start to have a program and build around that. Because doing something for the sake of doing it is not going to help us get there. And it's not going to help us achieve what we need as a business either. One really quick way of knowing that there's a problem with SAP is when people start speaking in German, you know that there's a problem. <laughs> um, definitely experienced that before. So going back to uh, align to the business, totally hear your point of view. What happens though if people lose sight of that? So example, I mean, if you're in a 50,000 uh, seat organization and you're just a drop in the ocean, cog in the wheel, whatever you want to say, it's really easy to lose sight of the overall goal. How do you sort of bring people back to sort of earth and say like, you know, I get it. I understand your point, but we've needed to focus on the big picture here because I think people do get lost in their everyday job. They can't see the actual company moving forward because they are like I said, drop in the ocean in terms of uh, how quickly that, that business does move forward? I think a lot of that just comes down to culture. And 
you know, and, and that starts with the, the tone has to be set from the top. You know, leadership have a very, very fundamental piece to play here, and that is making sure that people understand the mission. You know, think about humans. We're, we're purpose driven. I want to know what my place is here, and people have to go through that. And I think whether it's you know senior leadership, executive leadership teams, just even managers, you know, are you sitting down with your team to make sure that they understand what's the mission, what's the purpose, what are we trying to achieve here? And then how does that then relate to your job, your role? You know, one of my favorite quotes or stories that I remember sort of hearing, um, you know, many, many years ago was John F. Kennedy, uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. going to, I think it was the, the Florida Space Center and walking down the halls. And I'm, I'm, sure, I'm happy that it was JFK, JFK, I'm not sort of butchering the story, but walking down the halls and basically spoke to a, a cleaner. I said, what do you do here? And he said, I'm helping someone get to the moon. You know, that gentleman knew his purpose was because the big mission was that we wanted to safely get someone to the moon and back in the next 10 years. Mm, wow. And that's when you think about it like that, that was actually someone that understood their role. They knew what they were doing. They were helping the cause of getting someone safely to the moon and back. And you think about your own organization, what are you trying to do? Your strategic imperatives. You know, we want to be the best bank. How do we want to do that? This is how we're going to do it. You know, we people need to understand that it's not just simply a poster or a sticker or some sort of little slogan that you put at the, in your email signature. People have to believe it. And that really comes down to reinforcing that every single time. So if we switch gears for a second, uh, I'd like to sort of focus on big corporations uh, for a moment again. Uh, but some, you sort of touched on before, Sean, so some would implement like a 900-page questionnaire, sort of appears, uh, appease their auditor uh, and, you know, do their due diligence again. Uh, and sort of relax the compliance team. But, I mean, as we know, like, this is not really practical for smaller size businesses. Like, it's going to take them 100 years to fill that out. They probably don't even have answers to half of those questions because they haven't been around long enough or whatever it is. So, like, like what's going on here? Because I just, like, I get corporations saying that, but to me it's just not practical and it's, it's just beyond for a lot of these companies. I, I think that's where, you know, in the spirit of partnership, call it out. You know, what, what is actually, what, what does this actually do for you? Um, I've asked that. I've been on the receiving end of those, things, those types of questions as well. That's actually partnership where you're actually being able to call out the other person and vice versa. You know, I'm willing to put my neck out, on, uh, put my neck on the line for someone if they're willing to basically do the same for me. You know, and sometimes maybe I'll probably put my neck out a little bit further as well. But calling it out, what does this actually do for you? You know, think back to some surveys where someone just says, you know, how do you manage security? We have a person. Tick. Okay, well, that's good. You know, you've got cyber window dressing. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, but it's not, it doesn't serve any purpose. No. How are you actually managing risk right now? And there's a complete disconnect between, you know, the way they manage. The, the, if, they, if there's disconnect between there's no enterprise risk management, you know that there's actually going to be a problem there. You know, filling out 800 questions or, or sorry, providing 800 answers to 800 questions there's no point even sort of going through that exercise. You know, if there's something that's material to this organization that they're actually providing to you, and that could be an exposure point, that could be a jump point for someone to come inside your own organization, that hurts you. So what's the right way to do it? Manage the risk. You know, getting someone to fill out a survey, and I'm not trying to say that it's not, we should never do that because a lot of the times we have to get some of this information. Yeah, you know, someone could bond There's levels to it, right? There's exactly. And, that, and that's where I think it's prioritizing who are people that are material? You know, the person that delivers 
you know, the, 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 the garbage bins, as an example, to an organization, are they material supplier? Well, to me, that probably would have been. Yeah, but someone that actually has the ability to take some of my code and then wrap it up and put it into a, an appliance, that's actually material. Because I'd be scared of, you know, could someone actually tamper the goods that they're actually building? You know, could they do a range of different things? Have I, cho- have I chosen the right supplier because they build their products in a, you know, a, a certain geography around the world? You know, if I'm dealing with government, and let's just say US government, you know, they're, they're going to be asking a lot of questions. Where are you building these boxes? You know, I need to be able to attest to that. I think that's the big thing. So do you think that people, okay, so for example, going back to 800, you know, question questionnaire people got to fill out, do you think people are thinking, wow, we really don't need this? Or are they just following the process, like on the conveyor belt, all right, it's that person's job now, I've done my piece and now it's on to Sam and John's job now to, to make sure we get those answers back. Do you think people aren't really questioning about why we're doing things? Because I mean, if we were, if we were, perhaps we wouldn't. We'd have a lot less of this problem. I would. I'd probably have to say uh, I agree. I, I don't think some people are actually questioning it, and I would say it's everyone. Um, if I want to manage risk, I'm going to try and manage risk as much as I can on, on, for myself. You know, relying on someone to just give me some static piece of information that could be stale five seconds after they've actually sent it through—that's not managing risk. You know, how do you actually ensure that you can steal that? Is there going to be some sort of rigor, some checks? If you're a material supplier and I've actually put you on the list of you know my 10 out of my 1,000 that you are material. If something happens to you, it hurts me. Uh, I'm going to be spending a fair bit of time with that organization. I'm going to be looking at them and maybe I'm going to be looking at them externally. You know, They will know full well what I'm doing, but let's be very clear. What I'm doing is probably the exact same thing an attacker could do. Uh, you need to be aware of that because people are probably watching you to get into me and we know everything around... You know, that whole sort of third-party supplier attacks. You know, if you wanted to do something, and let's just think of something that's on a very old piece, watery hole-style attacks. You know, I go to a particular, you know, it's called abc.com.au as an example. I go to a news site every day. And on that news site, they're actually advertising, you know, typical sort of banner ads. Well, if I know that my target or targets are actually going to ABC every single day to check the news, and I can't go to AB, I can't attack ABC because they're actually well protected. Why don't I just actually go to all the, the advertising platforms that are there, target them, serve some banners that potentially contain some sort of malicious code, and then I now compromise your system. Could that happen? Yeah. Has it happened? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's all basically playing that process around. If I really, really want to get to someone, I'm gonna go through a lot of process to do it. And I'll, sometimes I'm not gonna directly attack them. Take Log4J as an example. You know, were the organizations that impacted, were they the actual intended targets? Probably not. You know, we're probably going to use some of that information for later attacks. Could have been some sort of just collecting credentials. You look at other ones, you know, all the previous attacks that have taken place, you think about it, were they the actual intended targets? Sometimes they weren't. You know, look at the organizations. You know, there was, there's ones that have popped up around, you know, one to many, you know, Cloud Hopper. Um, you know, is, is a great example. Let's target one organization, a service provider, and compromise them. Was that the intended target? Never. It was the actual agencies, the government agencies in particular, that they were actually managing. Because all they had to do was just get onto one jump box, the bastion host, to say that one host connects to 25 different organizations. And I actually want to get into one of those organizations. So we're always going to think about that's actually a third-party supply chain at risk problem that's actually there. You know, think about the uh, NotPetya attacks. Someone broke into a, an accounting application in Ukraine, you know, embedded some code in there, 
and then that got pushed out to every single other person. Kaseya, another example. Yeah, every single time we're seeing people that are actually going and saying, was that the intended target? No, but that's actually someone that I trust. And we have to go through and work out who are the people that we trust. And maybe sometimes we have to reevaluate who do we trust as well. Mm, so true. So, I mean, if you're in risk or you're in a risk, you know, you're a risk manager, isn't that sort of your job to question things though? So for example, I mean, if you go to a doctor and you say, I've got pain on my chest and they don't question it, like you're not really doing your job. So do you think that there needs to be this, like you said, coming back to the culture and the vision and all of these things to to get people to question stuff a lot. Maybe we're not doing enough of that, would you say? I, I think I, I'd say that we, we should never stop and we should always continue to do that. And then in light of the world that we've probably lived in the last two years now, where we're remote, you know, we have to be asking a lot more questions. We have to get more involved. We have to be more involved with our teams to challenge and, and challenge the thinking. You know, is this really the right thing that we should be doing? To use the term, like to call BS on it, you know, let, let's call BS on ourselves. Is this actually what we need to do moving forward? Because this is the way that we've always done it. You know, think about, let's just say what I've done at Pelton Oaks the last six and a half plus years. You know, that playbook or whatever I've actually done the last six and a half years is definitely not going to be the same playbook that I'll use for the next six and a half. I need to keep on sort of thinking about what are different ways, different approaches. doesn't mean that everything becomes defunct, but I keep on building on it. Keep on asking questions, keep on doing things a little bit differently, you know, more efficiently. I start to learn, I start to adapt because that's the key thing. We always want to make sure that we can keep on adapting because the attacker is going to do something different every time. Sure, the tradecraft doesn't really change that often. Tools and techniques, yeah, that changes all the time. So we have to adapt and change. I love that. Keep asking questions, keep forward thinking, keep looking at your suppliers. So, Sean, really appreciate uh, your time today. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Re- really appreciate it. And can't wait to get you back again for a, a third interview. Awesome. Thanks, Rosa. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.